0: I love looking around every Sunday and seeing, gosh, faces that have been with us for years, and also faces that are just visiting and joining us for the first time. About you know, whether you've been here for 30 years or for 30 minutes, we are simply a church with a mega vision, a vision of a Los Angeles in which every single person, and you can imagine them in your head right now, every single person has experienced the life changing power of the gospel, because we think the gospel changes lives. And one of the many ways we get the gospel out is here on Sunday mornings, by teaching from the scriptures about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and this morning, the ascension of Jesus. And so beginning as far back as December, and can you believe that December is almost a bit right around the corner? Christmas is coming. No, come on now, Christmas is a good time. Uh, We remembered Advent together, which was the arrival of Jesus into the world. On the heels of Advent, we went into a season of epiphany in the Gospel of John, walking with Jesus through the Gospel of John, which took us into Lent, which was 40 days of our march to the cross, which took us to Holy Week, which was remembering the crucifixion of Jesus. And then on Easter Sunday, his glorious resurrection, Uh, The past few weeks, we've spent some weeks talking about doubt. How do we wrestle with doubt well? We've talked about spiritual disciplines like silence and and solitude. And so over the next two weeks, we get the chance, you can call it a a mini-series if you want to, but we get to remember some of the big C church event calendars, uh, calendar events, those being Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. Ascension Sunday is simply the idea that after Jesus had raised from the dead and been with his disciples and and tons of other folks for 40 days, eventually he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And after Jesus ascended, the the Holy Spirit descended and, and filled the church. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And to do that, we'll be in Psalm 47. So if you have your Bibles You can turn to Psalm 47, and the way we're gonna structure this morning is you would tend to think, oh, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about his ascension, so certainly we'll talk about uh, the text in the book of Acts that chronicles his ascension, but in some of the the customs of the church more broadly, uh, they teach out of Psalm 47, which is called an ascension psalm. You see, in the imagination of Israel, it was deep within their theology, within their worship and within their great expectation that God was on his throne and that God would ascend to his throne and eventually put all of Israel's enemies under their feet. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to teach out of Psalm 47, which is an ascension psalm talking about God. And then we're also going to look at how Jesus fulfills all of these aspects in the New And so three things specifically that we're going to look at is how the ascension reminds us of the great jealousy of God. And we talk about the word jealousy, we're talking about the idea that God deeply, deeply loves his people. He wants their attention, he wants their affection, and he wants to watch out over them. Secondly, we're going to talk about how when we remember the ascension, it fills God's people with great and abundant joy. And third, we're going to talk about how the ascension of Jesus isn't just for the church, not just for Israel, but the jurisdiction of the reign of God extends over the entire world. So three things. We're going to remember the jealousy of God, the joy it puts in his people, and the jurisdiction of God. So as you go to Psalm 47, I do want to start with this, though. Uh, I've recently become, over the last 10 months, a dog owner. Which is just an incredible, incredible event in in my life. I have this wonderful golden retriever who's just friendly and fun and athletic and loves to say hi to other dogs and other people. And he's just the most friendly dog. But one of the things that's interesting about my dog, and we're not, my dog and I, we're not a big, like, we're not big on toys in the house as far as, I'm not like one of these bark box subscribers where you get new toys for your dog all the time. If you're a dog owner, you may know what that is. We just got a couple of toys. But my dog loves his toys. He's just got like three or four of them. And every single evening when he's kind of going into his his pen area where he sleeps, he doesn't wanna go back to his pen area until all three or four of those toys are back in the pen with him. Those toys can be scattered in you know the, the living room, the bedroom, the dining room, etc, but when he 's going back to his pen, he has a place for all of its toys, and it 's with him. when we look at psalm forty seven we we see a similar idea of God being jealous, gathering his people together and having a place for each of his people. but this is psalm forty seven beginning in uh Verse two, it said, for the Lord most high, he is awesome. We talk about that word awesome. We're just talking about how great and strong and magnificent God is. The psalmist continues and says, he is a great king, not just over Israel, not just over those who believe, not just over the church. He is a great king over all the earth. And more about that in just a moment. And then verse three gets very interesting. When the psalmist talks about the ascension of God, it talks about God saying, and he subdued nations, not under him, but under us. He put peoples under our feet. This word subdued is interesting because a lot of times when the Old Testament uses this word subdued, it's often translated to speak or to talk, uh, to speak in such a way that you are arranging things into their proper order. Uh, some theologians talk about how this brings to mind Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in which in Genesis 1, you have this moment where says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, It was void, darkness was over the surface of the deep. Theologians would talk about how there was chaos all over the world, but then God began to speak. He began to arrange creation so that there was order. In other words, God came and simply through the the sound of his voice, he began to subdue the chaos, to bring order, to bring peace, to bring function. Here in verse 3, the psalmist is using similar language that simply through God's voice, the chaos that surrounded Israel, the enemies that surrounded Israel, those that wanted Israel's demise, simply through God's speaking, he was bringing order and function and subduing the nations that were enemies of Israel under their feet. He says, these people are under our feet. And watch this in verse four. He says, he chose our inheritance for us. There was something about the ascension of God that reminded them that his rule and his reign was going to make good forever, the inheritance that he had given Israel, which in their imagination was the land that God had gifted them. Continue on to verse 4. He chose our inheritance for us, the land He would give to us, the place we would live, the pride of Jacob, whom He loved. When Israel remembers the ascension of God, it reminds them of the great love that God has for them. That the rising and the ascension of God meant that He was going to make good on His promises that from his throne he was going to speak in such a way that would subdue the enemies of Israel around them and bring their enemies under their feet. And he would establish Israel forever in the land, that they would partake in the beauty and the blessing of their inheritance. It's interesting, when we talk about the ascension, we talk about God speaking, bringing order, and subduing chaos. Surprisingly, this reminds me a lot of Bill Belichick, the football coach for the Patriots. If you ever watched football, it's a a chaotic sport. If you get it, you get it. And if you've watched it with someone that doesn't, they don't. And this is what I love about Bill Belichick is he's just one of the greatest minds of football of all time. One of the greatest coaches. And what I love about Bill Belichick is he doesn't actually do anything. He just talks. He's got a headset and he just speaks. And he's got an offensive coordinator. He's got a defensive coordinator. He's got a quarterback with a, a headset where they can hear him. And as much as there's a lot of action on the field, the person that is bringing order to the football field, the person that is subduing the chaos of the football field is simply Bill Belichick talking to Tom Brady, winning Super Bowls. There is a sense for, for coaches, they don't, they're not actually on the court. They're not on the field. They're not blocking. They're not shooting shots. They're not hitting the baseball, but they're speaking in such a way to subdue the enemies that are around them. When we remember the ascension, we remember that God's elevation and his words brings order to Chaos. Subdues his enemies and when we get to the New Testament, this idea is transposed onto Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. It says, and he raised Christ from the dead. This is God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We see this ascension, God raising Christ from the dead, Christ ascending, and now one like us sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, far above all authority, above all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, watch this. And God placed all things, under the feet of Christ and appointed Christ to be the head over everything for the church. There's this interesting idea that when we're in Psalm 47, God is ascending and he's putting the nations under the feet of Israel. And when we get to the first century, there's this tension because it's not quite happening the way Israel thought it would happen. And then when the New Testament writers speak about Christ, they say, Christ, now one like us, has ascended to the right hand of the Father and God is putting all things under his feet. The way that you anticipated it being in Psalm 47, putting everything under his feet and now in and through Christ, those enemies are somehow under our feet. Just a a thing about enemies for a second. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 25 to 26, it's just talking about Christ having ascended and now reigning. Chapter 15, verse 25 to 26, for he Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is not our social opponents, it's not our political opponents, not our corporate opponents. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For even death is put under the feet of Christ. And so when we imagine Christ having ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father and putting all the enemies of the earth under his feet, it's all the things that come to steal life from us. It's sickness, It's disease, it's poverty, it's greed. It's it's an unhealthy anxiety, an unhealthy uh, just not being in the right state. There is this idea that anything that would come against us to rob God's life, the life he has for us from us, Christ is putting it under his feet so what Christ said might be true, that he has come to give life to us, to give it abundantly, to us a better life than we could ask think or imagine the kind of life that overflows so anything that opposes that Christ is he's putting it under his feet when we remember the ascension we remember God's great love for us we remember the great love that Christ has for us, that the things that would come after us to rob and to steal life from us, Christ is putting it under his feet as our representative that sits next to the Father. Just Just a quick question for us this morning. What if that's true? What if Christ, one like us, has ascended to the Father and is sitting at the right hand and is putting all of your enemies under his feet. And again, not your political opponents, not your corporate opponents, not your social opponents, but the things that actually come after your life. The unhealthy anxiety you may have, the greed which so quickly grips your heart, that disease, that sickness that is coming after you. What if it's true that Christ is putting that under his feet? What would that do to our prayer life? With what kind of confidence or boldness would we now approach the throne of Christ knowing he sits at the right hand of the father and those things that are coming after us, he has put under his feet. How would we hope differently? How would we expect differently? When we remember the ascension of God in Psalm 47 and that being fulfilled in Christ, we remember the great love and jealousy of God for his people, that he would even put our enemies under his feet. This is the second thing we remember. We remember that when God has ascended, when Christ has ascended, it fills his people with joy. Watch this, this is back to Psalm 47, beginning in verse five. It says, God has ascended amid shouts of joy. Yay! The Lord, amid the sounding of trumpets. Verse six, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Why? For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. In this short moment of just three verses, we are commanded to sing to lift our voices and and not just the the psalm in our heart, which is really good, but the psalmist is filled with expectation that when God's people get a vision of him ascending and Christ ascending, that we would actually erupt into song. This uh, reminds me, I watched it last night as a refresher because it popped in my mind. I thought, oh, this is kind of similar. It was the Lion King. Lion King, what a fantastic Disney movie, but there's this moment at the end in which uh, Simba has, you know, defeated his enemy, Scar, uh, and there's this moment in which Pride Rock is vacant, waiting for the king of the the animal kingdom to take it, and so it's it's kind of dark, and it's gloomy outside, and the, the animal kingdom is a bit in disarray, and Simba begins to walk to the top of the rock. And when, when Simba gets to the top of the rock, the, the clouds begin to part, the sun comes out, the giraffes begin to sing, the zebras raise up on two heels, the lions begin to roar. It is this, this moment in which when Simba becomes king, the entire animal kingdom erupts. Yes, Simba has ascended to Pride Rock. We have somebody better than Simba. This is how Revelation speaks about that moment of all creation erupting into song. This is Revelation chapter five, beginning in verses nine through 14. In Psalm 47, uh, all the nations erupt into song because God has ascended and now that's fulfilled in Christ. It says this in verse nine, and they sang a new song, saying you are worthy. It's this, this moment of the elders having a vision of Christ, the, the lamb who's been slain. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people, every nation, every place. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And it's this moment in which John is having a vision and he kind of sees these elders erupt into song and the elders sing this song. And then John lifts his eyes just a little bit above the elders. He says, then I looked and above and over them, I looked and heard the voice of the many angels. Numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the one who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and uh, honor and glory and praise. And so John now around this throne, the slain lamb in the middle, the elders surrounding, the tens of thousands of angels surrounding them. John then lifts his eyes again in verse 13 and even beyond the angels. It says, then I heard every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in it saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped. When we remember the ascension of Christ, we remember as it's retold for us in Revelation that it's not just our church that is gonna sing the praises of that moment. And it's not just the current church globally that is going to sing the praises of that moment. Revelation actually recounts that all the angels, all of the creatures, all of the elders, everything in, above, on, around the earth will sing of the glory of Christ having ascended to the throne. When we remember the ascension of Christ, there's something about that vision that ought to fill us with the kind of joy that just comes bursting out. That when we come together, especially as a congregation, and we're led by such a good team as this one, that our songs wouldn't be quiet, that they wouldn't be dim, that they wouldn't be kind of downtrodden. But that our songs, because we are coming before the one who has ascended to God, our songs would burst forward with joy. And that we would sing, sing, sing praises to God, sing praises to Christ, because he has ascended. And one like us now sits at the right hand of the Father. That's really good news when we remember the ascension, we remember the the joy that comes out of us in praise. And this is the the third and final thing. Um, When we remember the ascension of God and subsequently the ascension of Christ fulfilling that, we actually remember the great justice of God. Psalm 47 continues in verse eight. It says, God reigns over the nations. God is not standing, but he is sitting on his holy throne. It's it's a posture of rest. It's a posture. There, There are no more opponents to him. He is seated comfortably on his throne. And watch this in verse nine. It says, the nobles of the nations assemble and the people of the God of Abraham for the kings of the earth belong to God. Man, God is... Greatly exalted. When the psalmist is talking about the reign of God in Psalm 47, oftentimes your reign as a king in the ancient world was really characterized by your your justice. How how just were you? How often did you do the right thing? Oftentimes the, the kings of Israel, when they when they get into a lot of trouble, they get into a lot of trouble because of their lack of justice because they're continuing to step on the downtrod and they're continuing to op- oppress the oppressed. And so oftentimes in the ancient world, when you talked about a reign of a king, you talked about in a sense of how just are you? And in verse eight, it says, God is now reigning over the eight nations, establishing his justice seated on his holy throne. And I love verse nine, because it talks about the nobles of all the world assembling before God. It says, even the kings belong to God. And what I love about this moment is when you kind of expand out and look at the text as a whole, you recognize that God is very concerned with being recognized as the God of the poor, as the God of the oppressed, as the God of the downtrodden, as the God of those that are at risk, marginalized, and in in a real, real tough situation. And he also recognizes, I'm also the God of the nobles, and the kings and the presidents and the dictators. I am the, nobody is outside of the jurisdiction and outside of my justice. No matter how much or how little money you have, no matter how much or how little status you have, no matter where you are in your career journey, you belong under the reign of God. Nobody lives or exists outside of that. Nobody is exempt. And so I love that moment when the psalmist says, everybody, nobles and kings alike, they come before the God who is reigning over all the earth. This reminded me of um, I mean, it's a very, it's, I mean makes sense that some of my examples would be ascension examples, but Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, another great example. It's this moment in Return of the King. Uh, Aragorn is, is kind of taking his rightful throne finally and there's this picture in the movie, if you go back and watch the end, in which Aragorn is surrounded by a kind of everyone who's left in Middle Earth, which is a lot of poor folks, a lot of peasants, and all the kings also surrounding the land. In other words, nobody is going to be outside of the rule of Aragorn in this moment. And and as Aragorn is being kind of established as king, I got a little ahead of myself. As he's being established as king, um, he's surrounded by all kinds of folks, and uh, it's interesting because Middle-earth is kind of in a post-war mess. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, it has been a couple battles here and there. And so you know, Middle-earth is in a, a post-war mess. And, and Aragorn says this to everybody that is surrounding him, the nobles, the kings, the peasants, the farmers, you name it. He says, let us together rebuild this world that we might share in the days of peace. Now, Aragorn's not gonna be out digging holes and he's not gonna be out building walls. He's gonna be sitting on his throne speaking in such a way that no matter who you were, from the greatest to the least, you're gonna be partnering together to rebuild, restore, and renew the world. This is Revelation 11, verse 15. It says a similar thing about the rule and the reign of Christ. It says, and the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. And these loud voices said, the kingdom of the entire world. Note, this would have been interesting. You would have expected this to say, the kingdom of all of Israel, finally Israel. But he says, no, the kingdom of the entire world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And from this place where he is reigning, he is calling together the privileged and the unprivileged, the wealthy and the poor, the powerful and the unpowerful to come and to renew and to restore creation under his spoken word to us. In other words... We all get to labor together under the reign and the rule of Christ to bring God's kingdom to bear here on the earth. As a church, that's one of the reasons why I love that we do serve day about once a quarter. It's the opportunity for all of us, no matter where we are in our job journey, no matter where we are in our socioeconomic journey, no matter how long we've lived in Santa Monica or how long we have not lived in Santa Monica, We get to come together and we get to labor under the rule and the reign of Christ to lift up the downtrodden, to work, to restore, renew, and redeem this city, to make sure the at-risk are not at-risk anymore, to make sure the unhoused have housing, to make sure those that are recently dealing with unexpected or unwanted pregnancies, that they have a route forward that we can honor life and take care of them. It's this idea of serve day that when we all come together, no matter where we are from, we get to serve together with the common purpose of bringing Christ's rule and his reign to bear in the earth. And that is a good thing. When we come together, we remember the ascension reminds us of three things. One, the jealousy of God that he deeply, deeply loves us. Two, the joy that it puts in us knowing that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. And three, the deep justice of God and of Christ that they rule over the entire world. And church, that's really, really good news. Can we pray together this morning? Father, we pause for a moment remembering Ascension Sunday, that in Psalm 47, it recounts this you ascending to the throne and then all throughout the New Testament, it talks about this Ascension being fully embodied in you. That now Christ, you sit at the right hand of the Father. And as you sit there, you have a a deep love for us. And that as we remember you sitting at the right hand, it fills us with great joy that causes us to want to erupt into song and and Father, we're thankful that as a church we get to labor under that rule. We get to labor under that reign together to seek the renewal, the redemption, the restoration of this city. And so, Lord, on this Ascension Sunday, would you uh, would you help us help us to remember it well? Help it to shape how often and where we serve. Help it to shape the way we come before your throne room boldly with prayers, knowing that you've, you've put all your enemies under your feet. Help it to affect just kind of the way we worship. That We worship with loud voices, joyous voices. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray, amen.